welcome everybody. It's horse hide to cow hide, America's pastime. Featuring your host, Ricky Litwinkowicz. Welcome to this week's edition of Horse Hide to Cowhide, America's Pastime. Happy Father's Day to all of the fathers out there, and we will really, really try to put on a great show for you this week. We have some return guests on the show, Joey Jazinka of the Eastern Observer, Alex the Bear Man of Texas, a Texas sports writer, Shukri Wrights, 91.5 FM in Boston, Mark Braverman, the lifelong baseball fan, Enzo Pontrelli, baseball historian, and a few others, especially the crew from the K&K Sports Show discussing a topic that we have later on in today's show. But let's not dabble around with it. Let's get to that baseball history. June 14, 1870, at the Capitol Line grounds in Brooklyn, the Cincinnati Red Stockings see their 130-game consecutive winning streak, 81 official games, and 49 exhibitions come to an end, losing to the Atlantics in extra innings 8-7. During the game, in an effort to not hit the ball to George Wright, the opponent's slick-fielding shortstop, hometown third baseman and captain, Bob Ferguson bats left-handed becoming the first known switch hitter in league history. 1965. Red starter Jim Maloney, who strikes out 18 batters, no hits the Mets for 10 innings, but loses 1-0 when Johnny Lewis connects for a homer in the 11th in the Crosley Field Contest. In August at Wrigley Field, the right-hander will again give up no hits through the first nine innings, but records this time a no-hitter when his teammate, Leo Cardenas, connects in the top of the 10th, providing the only run in Cincinnati's 1-0 victory over Chicago. 1990. The NL announces plans to expand from 12 to 14 teams for the 1993 season. The price of admission for each expansion franchise is $95 million. June 15, 1977. New York fans are in shock as the Mets trade ace pitcher Tom Seaver to the Reds. In return, they get pitcher Pat Zachary, infielder Doug Flynn, and minor leaguers Steve Henderson and Dan Norman. The Mets also trade slugger Dave Kingman to the Padres for utility player Bobby Valentine and a minor league pitcher. Seaver had been dissatisfied with both his contract and the way the team had been run. Then on June 12th, in a game against Houston in the Astrodome, Tom Seaver pitched what many thought would be his last time in a Mets uniform. True form, he won. It was his 191st victory for the Mets. But three days later, Tom Seaver was on his way to Cincinnati. As far as the fans go, I mean, I've given them a great number of thrills. Um, and they've been equally returned. And that ovation I got the other night. You're going to miss them, though. Not only would Seaver miss the fans, the fans would miss him. 
And the same could be said of Dave Kingman, who was also traded the same night. It was an emotional transformation, and June 15, 1977, will forever be remembered as the Midnight Massacre. Come on, George. This is as a punctuality contributor to Horsehide to Cowhide America's Pastime. The Midnight Massacre. It all began when the Mets front office and pitching great Tom Seaver had a contract dispute with each other. But later, the Mets made a move to trade Tom to the Cincinnati Reds. Here's the outcome of this. The cast of characters responsible for the trade are many. But the principals were Seaver, M. Donald Grant, the chairman of the board of the Mets, and New York Daily's columnist Dick Young. The roots of all of the deal can be traced back to July 12, 1976, when a new collective bargaining agreement was reached, which, among other items, ushered in free agency for the first time. At the time, Saber signed a three-year deal worth $675,000, making him the highest-paid pitcher in baseball, a distinction that would turn out to be very temporary. His deal was reached just a few months before the new CBA was adopted and was said to be a contentious negotiation between Grant and Seaver's agent. In the winter between the 76 and 77 seasons, owners of other teams raced to sign their players and acquire new ones with free agency in place. But the Mets were strangely quiet. This perturbed Seaver as the Mets who finished third in 1976 15 games out of first place were sorely lacking in offensive production. Outfielder Gary Matthews was available and many felt he would have been a perfect fit. But Grant and general manager Joe McDonald made no effort to sign him. And Matthews instead signed a five-year deal with the Braves. Seaver later told reporters, How can you not even try? The rift between management and Seaver was winding. As spring training began, Seaver, who was the Mets' player representative in labor negotiations, was happy that so many players had received marked raises and long-term contracts. Across baseball, 11 pitchers signed multi-year deals worth $1 million or more. Seaver's good friend Nolan Ryan, who the Mets traded to the Angels in 1971, was not eligible for free agency, but received an increase in salary to $300,000. Seaver wanted to renegotiate his contract to bring his salary in line with other top pitchers. Grant refused and even became nasty, calling Seaver a communist in the clubhouse for wanting more money and later berating him for joining a swanky country club. The situation was made even more tense when the owner's columnist Dick Young was one of the few columnists in town who sided with Grant. Seaver's demands greed. Negative piece after negative piece appeared in the Daily News, drawing fire from both fans and fellow writers. Seaver was advised to go over the head of management and talk directly with owner Lorinda Doberland. She, Seaver, and McDonald worked out in principle a three year contract extension as the trade deadline approached. However, before it was signed, Young wrote a suspicious column that intimated that Seaver was being goaded by his wife to ask more, for more money, supposedly because she was jealous that Nolan Ryan was making more money than Seaver. 
The mention of his wife enraged Seaver, and while in the coffee shop in Atlanta, Ford met management to inform them that the deal was off and to get me out of here. Seaver was traded to the Reds for pitchers Pat Zachary, minor leaguers Steve Henderson, and Dan Norman, and infielder Doug Flynn. That night, the Mets also traded Dave Kingman to the Padres for Paul Seibert and Bobby Valentine, and Mike Phillips to the St. Louis Cardinals for Joe Youngblood. The trio of trades would be dubbed the Midnight Massacre. Seba's departure led to widespread negative fan reaction, ranging from fans openly weeping to physical threats to Mets management on signs displayed around the city. With Seba gone, Mets fortunes quickly sank as they finished in last place the next three seasons and would not have a winning record again until 1984. Attendance also suffered with 1979 being the nadir as the Mets averaged less than 10,000 fans per game. The Midnight Massacre occurred a generation ago. The Mets going forward will win divisions, national independence, and even a World Series in 1976. But the ugly stain left by this team on that June night will never fully be removed. That was the night our number 41 was taken away from us. It was the night that forever changed the franchise because the franchise was gone. My mentor Pontrelli contributed to Horsehide to Cowhide, America's pastime. June 15th, 1999. Brewers pitcher Jim Abbott, born without a right hand, gets the first hit in his 11-year career when he connects in the fourth inning for an RBI single of John Lieber in the team's 11-4 victory over the Cubs at County Stadium. The Southpaw didn't bat playing for the Angels and the Yankees due to the designated hitter rule in the American League. Here's Abbott now. He took Lieber to a full count in the second inning before going down on the strikeout. Line over the shortstop, Jim Abbott's first major league hit, and it's going to score a run, baby! Jenkins to third! He's outed for third base! What a way to chime in with your first big league hit! Ladies and gentlemen, I am the Bear of Texas, Jim Abbott. Who will ever forget that day in 1999? The pitcher, born without a right hand, gets the first hit in his 11-year career when he hit that hit in the fourth inning of a game in an 11-4 win over the Chicago Cubs. The pitcher had previously played for the Angels and Yankees. However, due to the designated hit rule in the American League, he did not see any time playing as a batter. Jim Abbott really did have some accomplishments. On September 4, 1993, he pitched a no-hitter. In 1988, he won an Olympic gold medal representing Team USA in baseball. Today, the baseball veteran works as a motivational speaker. There's no denying that this man is living a hell of a life. All of his accomplishments, everything he's done, despite the handicap, if that's what we should make of it, 
he has really done some really good things. His record overall, 87 and 108, is respectable. A 4.25 ERA, and during his time, you know that you no know, hitter with the Yankees. It was a game against the Cleveland Indians. Very respectable career. And the Golden Spikes Award in 1987. It's not only the accomplishments he had playing in the MLB, but he represented his country in baseball, has two silver medals, and one golden medal representing the United States. That's Jim Abbott, ladies and gentlemen. A baseball pitcher that really did his best and really has accomplished a lot. And today, he's a motivational speaker. June 15th, 2016. Quote, I'm not trying to take anything away from Ichiro. He's had a Hall of Fame career, but the next thing you know, they'll be counting his high school hits. Unquote. Pete Rose, as quoted in USA Today. Ichiro Suzuki's ninth inning double in the Marlins' 6-3 loss to the Padres at Petco Park raises his professional hit total to 4,257 surpassing Pete Rose's all-time Major League mark. The 42-year-old outfielder's totals include 1,278 hits he collected for Oryx in Japan's Pacific League. Open up on a base run and play where you're a senior out, especially when you're a middle infield. Each A player who I've watched all my life, all the way up until just a few years ago, Ichiro Suzuki landed 4,256 Major League hits, and he surpassed Pete Rose. And for an obvious reason, I would say Pete Rose had a few comments. Remember back in 2009, there was a quote where it said, quote, and Ichiro dot 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 he can have the hits he got in Japan and he's still not breaking Pete Rose's record but then in 2013 Pete Rose said this to Newsday quote hey if you're if we're counting professional hits then add my 427 in the minors I was a professional then too end quote and then three years later Pete Rose said this to USA Today Quote, I'm not trying to take anything away from Ichiro. He's had a Hall of Fame career, but the next thing you know, you'll be counting his high school hits. Well, I will say something here, Pete Rose, is that there's a big difference. And you were caught betting on games for the Cincinnati Reds. You were caught, and just because you are barred from Major League Baseball for the rest of your existence does not mean that you should be taking away anything 
that Ichiro Suzuki has accomplished very humbly and proudly in his native Japan and also during his time in Miami, in Seattle, obviously, and with the New York Yankees. I remember I was at the game on August 21st, 2014. I remember that day very well. And I remember seeing, or excuse me, that was 2013. I remember seeing his 4,000th professional career hit off Barry Dickey. I think it was against the Toronto Blue Jays. And that was the coolest thing. And it was, he was the seventh player to, I remember that very vividly, seventh player to achieve said award. But to be completely honest here, Pete Rose should not be commenting on a lot of things and he should not be commenting anything in the negative tense because of what he's done in Major League Baseball and what he continues to do, which is be a nuisance and continue to try and be relevant in Major League Baseball. June 16th, 1938. Future Hall of Famer Jimmy Fox has walked six straight times in the Red Sox 12-8 victory over the Browns. The Boston first baseman will lead the American League this season with 119 bases on balls. 1978. Reds right-hander Tom Seaver no-hits the Cardinals at Riverfront Stadium 4-0. The gem is Tom Terrific's first no-no after taking a hitless game into the ninth three times during the first 12 years of his career. Tom Seaver, now a strike away from his first major league no-hitter. The Reds leading at four to nothing in the ninth inning. Hendrick puts ahead of the bat on the plate. Werner hangs a sign. Seaver with a pause, the check and the pitch. He bounces to first base. Dreesen has it. He goes to the bag and Seaver Seaver has pitched his first major league no-hitter, and this one belongs to the Reds. Seaver is being mobbed at first base as George Hendrick bounces a routine two-hopper to Danny Dreesen, and the 38,216 at Riverfront Stadium are standing. Tom Seaver has thrown the first no-hitter of his major league career. The 14th no-hitter in the long history of the Cincinnati Reds, and he did it in almost routine fashion tonight. And what a ball game. June 16, 1993. The 100th anniversary of Cracker Jack is celebrated with a party at Wrigley Field that includes distributing the candy-coated popcorn and peanut treat that was introduced at the Chicago's World Fair in 1893 free of charge to all fans attending the Cubs game against the Florida Marlins. Sailor Jack, the company's mascot, throws out the ceremonial first pitch. June 16, 2001. John Olerud becomes the 21st player to hit for the cycle more than once in his career, and only the second along with Bob Watson to have accomplished the feat in both leagues. Among all of the players who have managed to hit a single, double, triple, and home run in the same game, the Mariners' first baseman has the fewest career three-baggers, with just a dozen during his 13-year Major League stint. But the ball just jumps off this guy's bat. 
Oh, fair ball. There you go. Using the whole field as Ricky Henderson will run that ball down. Ball is in play, and John Olerud will have a stand-up double. Line drive, fair. How about that? That's going down into the uh, bullpen. Running it down is Trammell and Olerud. We'll go into third with a triple. So Olerud doubles to left and now triples to right. It's a pretty good chance. That guy could hit for the cycle tonight. Who knows? Drive into center field, charging as Katze has to play it out of high. So now he's three fourths of the way to the cycle, a single, a double, and a triple. Speaking of driving and runs, Garrett Anderson drove in a run in the bottom of the ninth. Oh! There it is. He has hit for the cycle. How about that? Bullard's ninth home run of the year. He now has 50 RBIs, and he has hit for the cycle. How many Padres have hit for the cycle? Never. It's very rare to hit for the cycle, but you've seen it tonight. June 16th, 2014. Major League Baseball today mourns the tragic loss of Tony Gwynn, the greatest Padre ever, and one of the most accomplished hitters that our game has ever known, whose all-around excellence on the field was surpassed by his exuberant personality and genial disposition on life. Commissioner Bud Selig on the passing of Tony Gwynn. Tony Gwynn, surrounded by his family at Pomerado Hospital in Poway, California, loses his battle to salivary gland cancer at the age of 54. The Hall of Fame outfielder who became the head baseball coach for San Diego State University after spending his entire major league career with the Padres compiled a 338 batting average over 20 seasons, collecting 3,141 hits en route to tying Hannes Wagner's mark of eight National League batting titles. Tony Gwynn died on June 16, 2014 at the tender age of 53. He died of cancer. He will always be remembered by San Diego Padre fans and baseball fans as a gentleman and a man who loved the game of baseball. He spent his entire career in a Padres uniform that spanned 20 years. His number 19 was retired by the San Diego Padres on September 4, 2004. Tony Gwynn's career will always be remembered as was one that not too many people ever had. His nickname was Mr. Padre. His batting average lifetime was 338. Number of hits that he had was a whopping 3,141. He joined the 3,000 club in 1999. His home runs was 130. Was 135. He was a 15-time All-Star and eight-time batting batting champion in the National League. Tony Gwynn will always be remembered by fans for his love of the game and his love of the sport. Personally, I'll always think of Tony Gwynn as one of my favorite baseball players. Somebody always found a way to find a hit, entertain the fans, and just talk to him. He was known to send the locker room after every game to talk more baseball with not only his, his fellow teammates, but his managers as well. San Diego Padre fans were saddened by the day that we lost him, and so was all of baseball. His number 19 will always be remembered, so will Mr. Padre by all baseball fans.
entered the Hall of Fame in the year of 2007. I also want to wish all the fathers out there a happy Father's Day, in particular my own, Barry Bravo. This is Mark Bravo, Painter Pipe Bomb, and we'll see you next week. June 17, 1941. Joe DiMaggio is credited with a hit in his 30th consecutive game when an easy grounder short bounces up and hits Luke Appling on the shoulder. Chicago beats the Yankees 8-7. June 17, 1943, Red Sox player slash manager Joe Cronin hits a three-run pinch hit home run in both games of a doubleheader, becoming the first major leaguer to come off the bench to go deep in each end of a twin build. Boston defeats Philly in the opener 5-4, but drops the nightcap at Fenway 8-7. June 17, 1960, Ted Williams, becomes the fourth major leaguer to hit 500 career home runs when he goes deep off the tribe's moundsman, Wayne Hawkins. Teddy Ballgame's 2-1 blast proves to be the difference when the Red Sox beat the Indians at Cleveland's Municipal Stadium 3-1. June 18, 1967. Astros hurler Don Wilson no-hits the Braves 2-0 striking out 15 of the 30 batters he faces. The right-handed fireballer, who will pitch another no-no for Houston next season, becomes the 10th rookie to throw a no-hitter. 1975, Boston rookie Fred Lynn drives in 10 runs with three home runs, a triple, and a single during the 15-1 drubbing of the Detroit Tigers. Lynch 16 total bases tie an American League record. 1986. Angels hurler Don Sutton becomes the 19th major league pitcher to earn his 300th victory when the Alabama native three hits the Rangers four to one. The 43-year-old right-hander will finish with a total of 324 victories during his 23-year career. Here's a clip from the K&K Sports Show where we discuss whether there will ever be another 300-game winner. The topic just so happens to be June 18th, 1986. Angels hurler Don Sutton becomes the 19th Major League pitcher to earn 300th victory. Uh, he beat the Rangers 4-1. to The 43-year-old right-hander will finish with a total of 324 combined wins during his 23-year career. Now, here's the discussion. Will there ever be another 300-game winner in the major leagues? I'll take no. that. No. Go ahead, go ahead, Jim. No, there's not. The way pitching now, the way it is, and the, you know, with the analytics the way it is right now, no one's, no one's going to come close because they're going to go five and in the shower and then go to the bullpen. You know what? Um I don't see anybody, you know, we were talking the other day, right? The, the current yep. guy, CC was close before he retired. You yeah. know, I'm, I'd have to look up to see who the closest active player is, but even whoever the most active player is right now, I wouldn't even think they would have a chance right now. Well, here's a bunch of names that I have. I actually have the list here along with my right. trivia question. I was supposed to give you guys the other day. So that's right. I'll, I'll bank the trivia the question. Fly. All right. So active 
pitchers currently in the major leagues, and, and these are some scattered numbers because they're all different ages. Got it. Currently, Bartolo Colon at the age of 46 would be considered the closest to 300 wins at 247. Hmm. Okay. Right. Now there's some other interesting names on the list. Again, I don't know about longevity because baseball changes. Uh, bodies change, you know, age is father time. But you have guys on here at 225, Justin Verlander at the age of 36. Okay. Granky, age 35, 205. And then I'll bring you some of the younger guys. Kershaw with 169 at the age of 31. Porcello, 149. David Price at the age of 33, 150. Rich, no, uh, no. Oh, I'm sorry, Jim. I just want to read a comment from Richard Petroselli. I would say no, only because of the money they make. There is no need to stay that long. They will be, they will be retiring with tons of money. 100%. I agree. But, That's the point I was just going to say also along with, with what I said before. Look at those numbers. You know what? No longer – you know what? It used to be 3,000 hits. You were automatically in 300 wins. Those – like the game has changed. Those are going to also have to change. You know, they're going to look at that 300-win plateau, and they're going to have to bring that down. And also, they're going to have to bring the 3,000 hits because, you know, it used to be a longevity. If you hung around, you had to be successful. Um, I don't know how you guys feel, Kenny. I'll throw this in for debate. I think the only way it will ever happen, and it may happen 50 years from now when none of us are are here anymore. Speak uh, for yourself. Knuckleball. (laughs) A knuckleball pitcher that can last in their mid-40s. If you get another knuckleballer in the future, maybe. That's the only way I think. That's such too a many injuries in baseball today, too. You, your, your pitchers aren't making it 40 starts a year anymore. The only, other, the only other shot they have is if they eventually go to seven innings, which people have kicked around. They say because baseball is too long and boring, make it a seven-inning game like, you know, in high school. And, you know, so, you know, in some leagues when they play double headers, they do two sevens. Um, if they ever did something like that, crazy somewhere, once again, after we're taking the long dirt nap, um, yeah, that's the only way that could happen. But the way it is now, not even close. That means Bartolo, even at his age of 247, or even Kershaw or Verlander. There's Verlander. What would you say, 225, Ricky? Um, yeah. Verlander's so, at 225 at the age 36. 75 more wins. Do the yeah, math. he's only he's only gone over twenty wins twice in his career, and last year was the only was one of them. And then other than that, he's gone nineteen and then sixteen. So, yeah, it's it's I think it's a combination of they use the relief pitchers way too much now. They they pay these relievers the money because their job is to go and get certain guys out. They're specialty arms now. It's it's it wasn't like that back in the day where they relied on the starters as much. That's why, like, I feel like CC is the last guy that is the one guy that you knew no matter what, you were going to get six, seven innings out of him plus extra. CC is the only pitcher to have to own the most complete games in both leagues in the same year. My buddy texted me that. The year he got traded to the Brewers, he had three complete games for Cleveland, two or it was just two for Cleveland, and then he got traded, and then he threw three complete games for the Brewers. So he led both leagues in the same year in complete games. CC. Guys, I have a question, though, because Chris Shula is saying, is this out of the question? He's saying, 
and I'm, I, I assume he's meaning Verlander, he needs to average 15 wins for the next five seasons. You don't think that that's doable? No. I don't. Because, no. I mean, just jo- Justin Verlander, Justin Verlander, he hasn't even gone over 15. I mean, he's gone over 15 a good amount of times. But if you look at the last couple of years, I mean, uh, uh, he, he only – the, the Astros that won the World Series in 2018, you would think that team was very, very good. He only had 16 wins that one year. And, I mean, that was three years ago. That was two years ago. So Yeah, but wasn't he also traded in the middle of the season that year? No, he was traded in 2017. 2017, he had 15 wins total that year with between the Tigers and the Astros. Well, I, I want to throw this comment out there because – how you guys? What was the what was the last year you said? Nineteen eighty six was the last guy that did that. Yes, nineteen eighty six. Okay, so nineteen eighty six. But even like in the in the past, like we're throwing around Bartolo, Cologne, Kershaw. Here's my question for that. Then, if we're saying, I know the game has changed, Jim, and you're like you're saying with the innings, Petro, and you know, like they're specialty pitchers, but. How many of these guys, I'm not even going to go back to 86. I'll even go back five, ten years. How many of these guys, like a CC Sabathia, are they Hall of Fame pitchers then? I think we're going to have to look at the numbers because, you know, look what happened with Musine and all those guys who pitched during the steroid era. You know what? I mean, uh, CC Sabathia absolutely is. He's, yeah, he's, I, I he's not, Andy, Andy Pettit, Andy Pettit has uh, 256 wins, he has five more than CC. That uh, number, the CC that number is going to come down. Mike Messina has 270. He's a Hall of Famer. You know what I mean? So, um, CC is more so he, he racked up a ton of strikeouts. I mean, CC, he leads the American League out of left-handed pitchers in strikeouts. And that's a pretty good – there's some pretty good company there that, that he's – so, I mean, CC for sure is. But I just think it's more so – the problem is the star pitchers now – the Garrett Cole, the Max Scherzers, you can't burn them out because you're paying them so much money. Good it's, point. You know, my, my, my father commented it's, it, he thinks it's because they'll retire and they're making so much money. I don't think that's the case. I think it's because the Yankees are paying Garrett Cole $34-plus million a year. You don't want that guy going out there throwing eight innings every single day because you, you need him to last for the, at, least, at least half the length of his contract. You know, CC. <laughs> CC reinvented himself because of Andy Pettit, and that's why CC was able to keep going longer than he did. Because CC, honestly, he was a shell of himself the last couple of years of his career. Oh, he was hurt. He was he was hurt. He was hurt. CC had that overpowering slider that he would just run in on people, and it would just dip, and it was impossible to catch up to because he was throwing high nineties a slider coming out as a lefty. It's almost impossible to hit him. So when he started slowing down, he had to reinvent himself, and the strikeouts started going down. He became more of like an in-play pitcher, but they just weren't getting solid contact. And it's the problem is, is a lot of these guys, they're not going to reinvent themselves anymore. And I mean, Justin Verlander, he's 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 been hurt. He's missed he's missed a year for almost a whole entire season for an injury. So I mean, he he's no spring chicken. And if he's seventy-five wins away, and he's the closest one, Kershaw too. But I think Kershaw is throwing a lot of complete games, and he's yeah. gotten deep in a lot of games. He's oh. got a lot of miles on that arm. Okay, so I have one name for you that was not listed in the beginning, and I did it for a reason because the longevity of this pitcher 
has already been around for 11 years, surprisingly enough to the stats that I have. Would you consider someone like a Madison Bumgardner at the age of 29 who has already pitched in 11 major league seasons and has 119 wins? Kenny? 119 wins in 11 seasons. That's uh, 10. No, no, go ahead. I'm good. I'm just, I'm just thinking that that's 10 wins a season. Yeah. So he would, he would have to really start turning it on. And he's in, he plays for the Diamondbacks now. That's kind of weird. I, I would have thought he'd have more wins. Honestly, that's kind of crazy that he doesn't. But I mean, that just shows right there. He's a, he's one of the, he was one of the best pitchers in baseball the last 11 years, and that guy could only get 119 wins. Well, here's so the, just show, here's the eye, here's the eye opening stats. So he really did not have a big major league career, 09 and 2010. He has averaged 13 plus wins from 2011 to 2016 with a high of 18 wins twice. Would you consider him as a possible long shot for a 300 game winner? Too much tread on the tires. Yeah, I, I just think it's too many. He, he had it. He had those. They relied on him big time in the postseason too. When he was like there, he pitched like on three days rest multiple times in those World Series games. I just, I just don't know if that arm's gonna hold up. You kind of started seeing it. I think that's why San Francisco didn't want to bring him back. I mean, yeah. oh, I don't know. I, that's 119 through 11 seasons. That would mean 181. Oh man! <laughs> well, if you if you were to, let's say he does pitch well in Arizona, because that's obviously his next stop. It's I mean, 181 wins is a lot, but a he's lot. only at the age of 29 though. That would be the eye-opening number if you if you give it any shot. I would still take my chance with Verlander on a good Astros team, just getting some cheap wins down the road. I would I would say Verlander in my opinion. I don't think guys with their contracts as big as big as they are are going to have to pitch that long. Guys are just going to go, and then when they reach the end of a contract, it's not like like we were talking about complete games being a badge of honor. You used to give Jack Marsable, you go nine innings. You give Frank Violable nine innings. You give guys, certain guys Dave Steve on the Toronto Blue Jays nine innings. It was a badge of honor. For a guy to go to a complete game, you gave the starter the ball, you didn't want to give it back. Uh, it's not that big of a deal anymore. It's I'm going to go out there, and when they tell me to go to the shower, I'm going to go to the shower. That's now, it. Now, Chris nope. Shule is making a good point about uh, Baumgartner. He's saying he needs to be with the Yankees, Dodgers, etc., a good team to have a shot. To have a shot. To have a shot. Just to have a shot. And that's like, you know, it's once again, it's longevity and being on a good team. Two things you really have to tie together. June 19th, 1927. Jack Scott becomes the last pitcher to go the distance in both ends of a doubleheader. The 35-year-old Phillies right-hander, who will compile a 9-20 record, beats Cincinnati in the opener 3-1, but loses the nightcap 3-0 in the Redlands Field twin bill. June 19th, 1942. Boston outfielder Paul Warner singles off pirate Rip Sewell to collect his 3,000th hit in the team's 7-6 loss to the Pirates at Braves Field. The 39-year-old Big Poison 
becomes the seventh major leaguer to accomplish this feat and the first to do it since 1925. June 19, 1973. In different games, the Reds' Pete Rose and Dodger Willie Davis both collect their 2,000th hit. The Cincinnati infielder, known as Charlie Hustle, reaches the milestone with a single against the Giants in the Reds' 4-0 victory at Candlestick Park. And the LA outfielder, known as Three Dog, reaches the plateau in front of the home crowd with a two-run homer in the team's 3-0 victory over Atlanta. June 20th, 1912. In a slugfest, the Giants and Braves score a total of 17 runs in the ninth inning. New York scores seven runs in the top of the frame, but the Braves score 10 runs in the bottom of the ninth to narrow the margin 21 to 12. June 20th, 1963. In the Bronx, the Yankees and Mets participate in their first Mayor's Trophy game with former Bronx bomber skipper Casey Stengel employing his best pitchers Jay Hook and Carl Wiley to defeat the reigning world champions in the exhibition contest 6-2. An enthusiastic crowd of 50,742, made up of mostly National League fans, sees many of their banners supporting the expansion club confiscated upon entering the house that Ruth built. June 20th, 2004, a Father's Day event and a milestone. Against Matt Morris in his career and officially counting today is two for 11 against the Cardinals right hand. The pitch and a high drive hit back into deep right field. Junior has just knocked the door down to the 500 club. A high drive into the lower deck and right. Number 30 touches them all, and boy, what a Father's Day gift for Senior. The dugout empties as he rounds third, getting the glad hand from Mark Berry, greeted at home plate by Adam Dunn, now Jason LaRue, followed by Sean Casey, and each of them will get a piece of Ken Griffey Jr. before he gets back into the dugout getting his 500th home run to right field. Leading off this sixth inning, and last but not least, manager Dave Miley, and now Junior running down toward the area where his mom and dad sit, and he is there with his father for a big Father's Day hug. What a scene this is here at Bush Stadium in St. Louis. Looking for his youngsters, and Trey, as all this comes up, they're all down there, his wife, Melissa. What a scene. Junior doffs his helmet to the crowd, and what an ovation they give him here in St. Louis. Great baseball fans in this town, and it was quite a sight. A typical junior home run, high and deep, and no doubt at all, the right field. The 20th member of the 500th home run club, and the suspense and the waiting is finally over. Ken Griffey Jr., number 20 in that elite 500 home run club. On Father's Day with his dad in attendance, 34-year-old Ken Griffey Jr. blasts a six-inning Matt Morris fastball over the right field wall at Bush Stadium for his 500th career home run. The red center fielder becomes the 20th major leaguer and the sixth youngest to reach the milestone.
Ken Griffey Jr. would go on to hit 630 home runs in his Hall of Fame career. While he certainly had an all-time great career, unfortunately, his career would forever be marred by the injuries that robbed him of what could have been an all-time great achievement of becoming the all-time home run king. I think it's fair to say, and it's important to say, that King Griffey Jr. on that day in 2004, it was a special moment. Not only was his 500th career home run, but certainly him going into the crowd and, and hugging his dad and sharing that moment with him is something that I'll certainly never forget. When we talk about King Griffey Jr., we're talking about one of the greatest five-tool players the game has ever seen. A man who graced the outfield with a grace that we have seen, that, that we have not seen since. Not to mention that Ken Griffey Jr. was a guy who had the smoothest swing of them all. That beautiful left-handed uppercut swing that certainly sent black baseballs out into orbit. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, I am the Bear of Texas, and I'd like to take a moment and speak about Ken Griffey Jr. That day in 2004 on Father's Day, his, Ken Griffey Jr.'s father was in attendance that day, and Ken Griffey Jr. blasted a home run in a sixth inning at Bush Stadium for what would have, what was, for what was, career home run number 500. It was on that day that the Red center fielder became the 20th major leaguer and the sixth youngest to reach that milestone. Absolutely, unbelievably phenomenal. And speaking of Ken Griffey Jr., let's take a look at some of the accolades of his career. First of all, I should mention in 2016, he was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame where he received 99.32% of the vote. Amazing. In his career, 2,781 hits, 630 home runs, 1,836 runs batted in, and a batting average of, of .284. 13-time All-Star. AL MVP of 1997, 10 Golden Gloves, 7, 7 Silver Slugger Awards, National League Combat Player of the Year of 2005, a four-time American League home run hit leader, just absolutely unbelievable, and besides the American League Hall of Fame, he's a member of the Hall of Fame of both Cincinnati, Cincinnati Reds and the Seattle Mariners. And last thing here, the Seattle Mariners number 24 is tired. There's a lot of special things about Ken Griffey Jr., but the one thing I think that will stand out the most besides his talents and all the accomplishments was his unique swing. Believe me, ladies and gentlemen, I vow that there will never be a player that's going to have a, a swing, a unique style of swing like Ken Griffey Jr. That concludes this week's episode of Horse Hide to Cow Hide, America's Pastime. We thank Alex the Bear Man from Texas, Joey Jerzenka, Shukri Wrights, 
Mark Braverman, Enzo Pontrelli, and the guys from the K&K Sports Show for their contributions to this week's show. All clips that were used on this week's show are used under the Fair Usage Act, and we'll still give credit to Major League Baseball and the NationalPastime.com website for their information on these events. Tune in next week for another edition of Horsehide to Cowhide, America's Pastime. Happy Father's Day.